Hi everyone, welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. My name is Ton Dobbe and I'm the founder of Value Inspiration and the author of The Remarkable Effect. I'm creating a tribe of tech entrepreneurs that are on a mission to do something big and meaningful. I invite you to join the tribe as well, especially if you want to create change that matters and put your software business on momentum that you're proud of. The goal that I have with this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. The guest on the podcast today is Quintus Wilmsen, co-founder and CEO of the Share Council. One of the things I basically stumbled upon along, along the way was the enormous divide in capital in our society. Just the example of Europe, 64% of the capital in Europe is in hands of 10% of the population. The reason that divide is there is because the return on capital is higher than the economic growth. So my salary will never keep up with the, with the speed of which there's return on capital. If you can leverage that, if you can get more people the leverage of return on capital, one of the forms is having a savings account, fine. Another form is having a share. About five years ago, I ran into that and I wanted to make everybody a co-owner. And I figured out, wow, it's actually, it's actually pretty difficult in the Netherlands to make someone co-owner of your business. I had a company of about five employees and I wanted to make them co-owner. The first bill I was looking at was between eight and 10,000 euros. This is more or less a smack in the face for any entrepreneur, any good willing entrepreneur who wants to try and, and give this opportunity to employees. This is Quintus. He's on a mission. Every day he's solving societal problems with technology and entrepreneurship. This mission started in 2014 as a long journey to change the world with the use of technology. To change how people work together and the working conditions. To change how life and work are perceived. To improve education and the knowledge spread. To improve equal division of capital and to prepare the world for the next generation of technology and innovation. And this inspired me and hence I invited Quintus to my podcast. We explore what is wrong in society when it comes to the capital divide. We talk about the biggest bureaucratical hurdles and how technology can be leveraged to overcome that. We talk about the importance of big vision thinking when it comes to drawing the right people in, people that share the belief and help spark that momentum. And lastly, we discuss some of his biggest entrepreneurial lessons learned. By listening to this podcast, you will learn four things. Firstly, that some of the most remarkable software businesses start because they were bold enough to solve the problem that was in the way of their own success. Secondly, how to spark momentum by having a sensitive eye for the most critical and often illogical roadblocks to be removed. Thirdly, how having a strong vision and belief in what you do, act as the magnet to get the right people to be drawn in and join you on the journey. And fourthly, that as an entrepreneur, you better be prepared you're going to make all the big mistakes at the same time. And then surround yourself with the right people to protect you from doing so. Hi Quintus, thank you for making the time available today and be a guest on my podcast. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Very happy to be here and I was honored that you invited me. Yeah, I mean, it was only because of, yeah, I couldn't resist the recommendations from Marike. 
Rieke de Wild, the CEO of the new Fork, who spoke highly about you. Yeah, that's where things started to roll. And I've yeah, informed myself about what you do. I've spoken one time with you and one time with your partner. Got really impressed with what the platform and what, what, what your organization is doing and, and what's possible with that. So this has to be shared with other people and with, with the audience around the world. So we're going to talk about your company, the Share Council, in a minute. What I typically do to get things started is to give a little bit of attention to who you are. If you had to describe yourself in two or three words as a person or an entrepreneur, what words would you use to characterize yourself? Solving societal problems. Nice. Three words. Yeah. That's exactly what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of immediately kind of brings a second question up. Why this passion for societal problems? The blunt answer to that one is that about six years ago, I started my own business, software development business. And at the moment that I started that business, when I started becoming an entrepreneur, because I'm coming from more corporate careers, when I started as an entrepreneur, just before that, I had realized a simple thing. I'm white. I was born in the Netherlands, born in a good middle class, upper middle class family, had a really good education, had everything running for me, still have, have nothing that I can complain about. And of course, there's a lot of people alike in my situation, especially in the Netherlands. But I figured there's a lot of things I got to do wrong if I really want to fuck it up for myself. So if it's that easy for me to be, quote unquote, successful in life, why not try and spend all the time that you have in helping others to get there as well, who did not get, were not born in the same situation, who did not have the same background, who did not have the same opportunities throughout their life? Because I actually think in a person in my situation, you're more or less obliged to do alike. Because, yeah, you got the cards dealt that were very, very lucky. Applause for that. Love it. I mean, I, yesterday, last week I had a, an interview with someone and it gave me goosebumps and it's there again. <laughs> 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 no, but I mean, that's fantastic. So, yeah, kind of connecting that purpose to your business. So what is the big idea behind the Share Council? Because that, that, that needs to be the connection there. True, true. There's a few stories to it, a few ways to look at it. If you look at, I, when I started my business six years ago, I said, okay, I'm going to start a business. What I'm going to do, I'm going to solve societal problems with technology and entrepreneurship. That's my goal. Figuring that I think that most societal problems can be solved with some form of technology combined with a good entrepreneurial boost to it. Anything that you can't make a business case out of it is going to be really difficult to survive in our current society, so to speak. So if you want to solve something, capital spread, environmental goals or anything alike, and you set a business case up around it, there's a bigger chance of it being sustainable and, and surviving. So if, I, if you want to do that, I thought, okay, I want to set up businesses that solve certain problems. If I'm doing that with the current time we live in, it has to be a business with some kind of technological background that actually supplies it with the opportunity to actually solve something and do it exponentially. And then I thought, well, let's first start a technological business and then start a lot of other businesses that solve certain societal problems. 
And one of the things I basically stumbled upon along, along the way was the enormous divide in capital in our society. Just the example of Europe, 64% of the capital in Europe is in hands of 10% of the population. It's difficult to find an easy solution for it. Some people say, well, just raise super high taxes and make sure that all the tax money is spent again on the middle class and the lower classes of the lower middle class of society option, but it's political, very difficult solution. And if you read the Thomas Piketty kind of books well, you can see, okay, the reason that divide is there is because the return on capital is higher than the economic growth. So my salary will never keep up with the, with the speed of which there's return on capital. If you can leverage that, if you can get more people the leverage of return on capital, one of the forms is having a savings account, fine. Another form is having a share. Perfect. That's something I can work on. The reason we then started with the share council was that business that had started, a software development company, I thought, I want to have everybody have as much autonomy as possible. Be able to decide everything for yourself, even your own salary. If you want to decide on your own salary, you have to be co-owner of the business. It's the only way. About five years ago, I ran into that and I wanted to make everybody co-owner. And I figured out, wow, it's actually actually pretty difficult in the Netherlands to make someone co-owner of your business. And difficult in the sense of it it really requires to study all the rules and regulations around co-ownership to do it right. I said, well, it can't be that there's no one who once started an app or some kind of little website or something that easily guides me through all this. And I did find something, but basically I did not find the solution. Hence, by pure coincidence, I figured, well, let's build a system ourselves that we at least internally can start sharing the ownership of the company with other people. Eventually, in 2017, we figured, hey, we, we now actually have a business that actually works. Hey, we linked a blockchain to it. That makes it easy to transfer that ownership. And we got more and more requests from the market. Hey, can we use that system as well? And in the beginning, we said, well, no, because we really built it just for internal use. But eventually, in 2017, we decided, okay, you know what? Let's, let's move on and make sure that it can be used externally as well. And that's also when I ran into Marcel, my business partner in this, who came out of the HR and software development business. And he said, well, yeah, this, this seems fantastic. This links in with my, with my love and knowledge of HR. It links in with technolo- technology. And we're actually trying to solve a social problem. And I'm, I'm, I'm able to be an entrepreneur, Marcel, by then coming out of the more the corporate world. They say, yeah, let's do this. And that's when we start running into the market. And now we're three years later and actually have a, yeah, I can say pretty successful business in making sure that companies can super easily share their ownership. I do say immediately it has grown from only employee participation, which it was originally built for, to a system. And I mind you, this were the clients that decided on this, but to a system that also makes maybe customers co-owners of your company, maybe suppliers co-owners of your company, and of course, having investors on board on your company. So all of a sudden, in total, you have four stakeholders, basically all the stakeholders around your company that can be co-owner of your company. But if you can create a community alike, that is a big part of the success of our system. Yeah. Fascinating story, and particularly because it started like yeah, doing something in the back of the, back of the garage <laughs> to solve something pretty 
Yeah, that's what does hold your own company back from what you wanted to achieve. So, yeah, well, it was always... literally solving something that that we ran into. Yeah, yeah. Not even realizing how big of a problem it really is. Because I mean, just give me an illustration of that. Say I would join your company, or I would join a company, and they want to make me co-owner of it. I mean, what is the process that you have to go through? How long does it take? What is the cost involved? When I had a company of about five employees and I wanted to make them co-owner, the first bill I was looking at was between eight and 10,000 euros. Right. I had a small company, just a handful of employees doing a really small turnover a month on monthly basis. And I got someone who said, well, if you want to be advised and if you want to have this set up and if you want to go by the notary and by the lawyers and, and run through your numbers with the accountant and then get it all finalized, will be around eight to 10,000 euros. And by then I thought, okay, this is more or less a smack in the face for any entrepreneur, any good willing entrepreneur yeah. who wants to try and, and give this opportunity to employees. So that by itself is already ridiculous. Then if you look into it, by the mere fact that you got to be, that you got to go by so many ports, so to speak, you got to go through the port of the accountant, then you hop onto the port of the lawyer, and then eventually you end up at the port of the notary. All of them have a good bunch of questions which overlap, by the way, but yeah, they all need to ask them and they all need to verify and they all need to do that. Eventually, after three months or so, you're, you're somewhat on your way. Yeah, and correct. If that is the case, and if you then look at the fact that the Belastingdienst, the fiscus, the fiscal regulatory bodies, yeah. the tax authorities, thank you. If you look into how difficult they make it for you to, to set this up, because what the tax authorities say, it's fine, Quintus, that you want to share your company with your employees, but if you give them a share... We see that as remuneration. We see that as salary. We see that as income for the employee. And you are obliged to pay the taxes over an income, regardless of whether it's a share or money or a car or anything else. You got to pay taxes over that income of that employee. Yeah. And that employee themselves also need to pay taxes over that. And mind you, you as an employer need to do that for them. That's the way we work in the Netherlands. So all of a sudden, you run into this whole regulation around salaries so you're becoming a whole new hr office and mind you again five employees a small running business with just a handful of clients doing a small turnover a month yeah. all of a sudden running into a bill of between eight and ten thousand euros to set it up yeah. and then the, the continuity bill of the hr department that you need to figure out and, and get up and running yeah so you think about it twice or three times or four times it's, what, what it's, is actually yeah what, what strikes me even more is not even the fact that it's costly and it takes a lot of time, like months, and of course, the, the connecting costs from there. But what I also believe at the end is that it's maybe it's even more about what it stops an organization from doing, kind of the upside of it, rather than yeah, just looking at the cost side. Because I mean, talking about employee engagement, commitment to the business, and what, what that gives you. And the, uh, so, I mean, my, my normal question is always like, what is the opportunity if we get this right? Well, there's two things in doing the, When you do this right, there's two main opportunities. The main one right now, of course, is the opportunity for the entrepreneur. I mean, we need to convince the entrepreneur that this is a really good idea. And the numbers tell you that it is so. As soon as you start employee participation, your turnover goes down. So you have less cost on hiring new people and doing recruitment, doing any selection, anything like. 
your sick leave goes down and immediately your company is more resilient to any crisis, to any economic turbulence, to anything that has a downturn to your company whatsoever. So you have three main things that immediately have an influence on your company. Let me make a small interruption here. Quinty just made an excellent remark that defines what his business is really all about. It's not about making the administration of employee participation easier, faster or cheaper. It's about giving its ideal customers a position of advantage. Too often we believe the thing our product does is what we're all about. Where it's really about the bigger outcomes that our product helps unlock for the customer. And this is what remarkable software companies understand like no other. They not only create new value possibilities, but they also understand where their true value lies and how to make that desirable. You can master these traits as well. And I have two options for you to start. First of all, read or listen to my book, The Remarkable Effect. And you can find that on amazon.com. Secondly, get into action right away and surround yourself by a group of people that think and act like you. Tech founders and CEOs that will help you remove your blind spots, explore new paths and sharpen your thinking. How? Just visit valueinspiration.com. Back to the interview. And that is shown not, not just by us in research. Uh, we are also doing more research on this. But if you, if you look this up on Google, if you just Google employee participation and the economic benefits of it, it's unbelievable. And then there is a second main thing, and that is, of course, the societal benefit. If you imagine, for instance, we are focusing on SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises. In the Netherlands, that's 80% of our economy. It's 450 billion euros a year running through that part of the economy. There is the vast majority of entrepreneurs that own these businesses, and that's it. 90% of the employees in the Netherlands works for this group of companies. If you can make those people co-owning that part of the economy, you make 90% of the people in the Netherlands co-owning 450 billion euros running through our country. That's a big impact you can have on capital spread. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that was, that's, that's the next question to ask. Like, why would everybody, every, every company do this? And why would you limit that to just a few employees rather than everybody? <laughs> yeah, I would say never limit it to a few employees. But that's also, what normally is happening, I think, because of the constraints that you've already highlighted. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's it. It's a no-brainer to have everybody go on the business. It's a no-brainer to basically have anybody who touches your business in any way have them co-own it in some way. It's a no-brainer that, that, that people are more engaged, whether it be an employee, whether it be a client, whether it be a supplier, and of course, whether it be someone who wants to invest in your company. So it, for, from that part, it's, it's a no-brainer to do it. The other part is a no-brainer to do it, to have all your employees always participate in these kind of forms is it brings it to life. If everybody co-owns a business, it brings it to life. You see that the biggest mistakes in this whole matter of employee co-ownership of ESOP models, so to speak, employee share option plans, is when you only use it for top management. And then if you only use it for top management in financial terms, that it has, it's basically only once you sign your contract, you see it once, you have some kind of bonus and benefits to it. And when you terminate the contract or when you're paid out, that's the other time you see it. Everything in between, it doesn't live at all. 
So it doesn't live up to the expectations of a lower turnover, of a lower sick leave, of better stability, all those kind of things. And that immediately comes in if you make it, if you really put it to life in your company, if you really have all the lines in your company, co-own the business and really draw them into it. So yeah. Yeah, it's a no-brainer to have everybody co-own it. Absolutely. You, uh, you, you sold it. Well, we talked about the aha moment and how this all came to came alive. So you're a couple of years down down the road right now, developing the product first of all for your own business, and then yeah, starting to allow others to make use of it as well. So what, how has that product strategy evolved over time, and what did you do specifically to it in order to to make it as remarkable as, as it is today? Good point. Main thing we did is expand the product first of all. That was and that was necessary because what we did, we started the product with only one form of participation possible. And that was the cheapest, easiest, no notary needed, because for the ones that are not living in the Netherlands, in Netherlands, you always need a notary to move a share from one person to the other. We found a way, no notary needed, really nothing to set anything up, nothing whatsoever. So that was the most light version of in which you can with which you can truly make someone co-owner of your business. And it's basically called the selling of economic ownership rights on shares. We built a system to do specifically that because I asked one of our advisors of that, that little software firm that I had, who is a, is a lawyer here in the Netherlands, Rüggeke van der Velde. I asked Sjoerd van der Velde, how could I, as cheap as possible, as simple as possible, without the help of any notary or lawyer or anybody else, get someone be a co-owner of my company? And he, he explained this. Yeah. So when we did this, fine, it works. Super. We still sell it to companies because it's the quickest and easiest way to get on it. But it wasn't well known in the Netherlands. What is very well known in the Netherlands is setting up a foundation and have that foundation be a co-owner of your company and the foundation giving out something called depository receipts. Or in the Netherlands, we refer to it as certificates. And those certificates can also be traded without a notary deed. But you still need to set up a foundation and you still need to, there's all kinds of regulation to it. And there's all kinds of... yeah. There's a few specific things to it if you do it. One of the most specific things is you got to sell a certificate and a share by its number. Every share and every certificate has a number. So we needed to change our whole system to all of a sudden really handle different separate numbers, which we now do. So those kind of things, it, it, it started expanding, expanding. And as soon as we had that foundation model in our system, it really took off. Because you have indeed a shit ton of companies in the Netherlands that already have a foundation or that are on the verge of setting up a foundation that co-owns their company. The structure of the share council itself is also a foundation structure. The foundation owns 100% of the share council. So we took another extreme route in that one, by the way, because normally what you see is 10% of the company is, is, is sold to a foundation. This so foundation gives out these certificates. We've said, no, okay, 100% of the company is owned by a foundation which immediately protects what the company is set up for, what the goal of the company is. Yeah. It gives everybody the same rights or no right at all, somewhere in between. And it makes it everything 100% super easily tradable. So we have a super liquid company of which everybody can become co-owner, which is the case. We already have 150 co-owners of our company, even though we started with the foundation only this summer. And that runs from employees, customers, suppliers, and of course, investors. 
So that's more or less how we develop further and further with the, with the platform. And the next big step that we're making is that the, all the shares are publicly traded. And we're doing that with our partner. We have a partnership with an exchange and an exchange offers public trading, has all the regulatory flags for that to be able to do that. And in the partnership with them, we're super proud that we now can also truly publicly trade every company. Well, yeah, I mean, I can see uh, where, where this is going for you. And it's interesting also, that, I mean, how you believe in it yourself, the 100% in the foundation and enable everybody in the company to be, yeah, to participate and to, to get that commitment going. Were there any surprising byproducts that came out of this that you say, hey, we didn't anticipate this, but now that, now that it's there, it actually makes things more exponential in, in how it delivers value. Maybe that is, for example, the fact that you can have multiple type of ownerships. Because a lot yeah. of companies, I mean, if I think about the companies that I've used to work for, yeah, they were, of course, at some point in time investors, but then it, everything is investor owned. And at, at some point in time, it was maybe with the top management, and then it, it, there was an IPO and there were, of course, shareholders from the outside, but never customers, never suppliers. What does that too, do to a company? Yeah, in all honesty, I didn't come up with that, with having the suppliers and the customers and all that being co-owner. I did, after I saw it happening, I thought, hey, this, again, this is a no-brainer. This is a really good deal. This is basically the best thing you can do. And towards customers, it's the best marketing you could ever put to life. But I do have to say it was clients of ours that started to use the system differently than we intended it initially. We had intended it, the whole system, to just be employee co-ownership. We were focused and are still focused at employee. And I'm still very much focused on that for the simple matter that the vast majorities of employees in, in not only the Netherlands, but in Europe, it's 99% of the employees in Europe work for small, medium-sized enterprises. Yeah. That's 99% of our workforce in Europe. That's so many people. If we can change their lives, there's so much we can change. So that's where we're stemming from. But then a client of ours all of a sudden said, hey, you know what? I actually, I had a really good advice on valuation of my company. And yeah, I basically paid the valuator with equity of my company. So I, I actually have more money right now. And I was surprised. Yeah, that's actually a really good idea. And then another company came and said, well, yeah, we, we, we're short on cash, but yeah, we have a lot of subcontractors working for us and they all want to become co-owner. They believe in our company and they want to be paid out in equity. So yeah, all of a sudden with your system, we can do this. And that was a byproduct. And now in hindsight, I say, yeah, of course, it's a logic byproduct. But in the beginning, I, I never thought of it that way. And I never thought that was regulatory even possible. But it seems yeah. to be regulatory fairly easy when, once you, you have the system to do it. If you think of it, indeed, it makes so much sense. I mean, I did a couple of value proposition projects for various companies. And for example, if you look at supply chain, if a supplier is more invested in your company, there's, there's this trust going on. It's not breaking the promise, always being there. And things will just go smoother, yeah. even if it's outside. And the same thing, yeah. of course, can you, if you connect it through to your customers, it, it just creates a bond of trust. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. And, and hence, again, it indeed, in hindsight, it's a no-brainer. But yeah, I cannot say that I came up with it. It really was our clients that started no, to... In that sense, abuse our system in a good way. And I'm very happy that they did so because that's now the path that we are also following. 
we already in the beginning said, okay, we are going for the European market. We believe in Europe. We believe in the standardization in Europe. We believe that we can reach all those lives in Europe. So that's, that's within our reach. That's about as far as I, I can stretch. Yeah, and if, you, if you're doing that in this way, then all of a sudden you see, okay, well, we don't even only have to do employee participation within Europe, but wow, we can truly help all these small and medium-sized enterprises also with their funding rounds, also with getting more customers loyal to them, also with having suppliers who are actually thinking along, how can we make the supply chain as, as efficient as possible? So yeah, it's, yeah, there's a lot coming out of it. You start indeed to start to kind of change the dialogue and remove the normal obstacles from the table and, and focus on like what really matters. So yeah. on, the, on your journey, the number of years that you've been on this now, what has been one of the major obstacles that you had to overcome? in order to yeah, create a growth or to get through something? I have a lot of respect for people who start a business out of nothing, who just start, who don't have anything, who don't have any, they don't have any leeway financially. I mean, they don't, they need to, to have a job on the side to be able to pay their rent and still on the side, they start a company. I have a lot of respect for those. Yeah. And I think for every small entrepreneur who doesn't stem from a large pocket of capital, that is the biggest obstacle you can have. It's always your liquidity. How do you make sure that everything runs at the same time with still having your family living with a good roof over their head, with still your wife being able to do with you, do together what you think you could, with still giving all the opportunities to your children, people in that sense being able to set up a company next to that, and then even more so the ones that try to do it in a social manner to try to solve some societal issues. I have a lot of respect for that. And I think I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of things for me running. And again, then I go back to all the way to the beginning. I have the cards well dealt, but still also for us, that is one of the biggest obstacles there is. It's, all, it's always cash. <laughs> In relation to that, is there anything that you regret now that you know it? I mean, what would you have done? What would you do different next time if you, do, if you start something like this? I think I would first sell the idea, get more capital in and then start. Then the reason I would do that, there's a disadvantage to that. There's a major disadvantage to it. If you first sell your idea, then get capital in and then start the company, the result is that the shareholders immediately have a great chunk of the company, which gives you more difficulty to make it truly a social enterprise, socially orientated. On the other hand, if you do it that way, you can, in a, with a higher speed, set up more companies. And in my case with a higher speed setting up more companies would mean with a higher speed trying to solve multiple societal problems. So I can, I can just do more good if I do it in a different way, I think. That's a constant internal struggle that I have. Unfortunately, I can't be at two places at the same time. I wish I could, but I do think I can speed things up and have multiple of these initiatives running at the same time. Good advice or good, good point. And there's, I mean, if I go and look at the discussions we have on, our, on the tribe that I run and the mastermind sessions that we have, this is going by quite often in terms of like yeah, bootstrap, fund, when to do what in order to, yeah. uh, to create the biggest leverage. 
Yeah. It's something that, uh, that a lot of people... I do have to say, our society doesn't make it easy to get out of that whole bootstrap loop, especially not in the Netherlands. For the ones that follow the news on investor opportunities, investor possibilities, and employee participation plans, also by now have seen that the fact that only about three and a half, maybe 4% of the employees co-own the business that they work for, and it's a really no, not low number if you compare it to the United States, where it's about 25 to even 30%, depending on which parameters you use. The fact of that matter is that there is less variety of people ending up with a good pocket of money here in the Netherlands than there is in the United States. And the result of that is, in the United States, you have a wider variety of investors of employees that all went through that threshold of setting up a startup, of the difficulty of doing that, recognizing it, and recognizing that you want to do something back to society. And you see that next startup entrepreneur struggling its way. You know you have the means to help that person out of that pit that it needs to get to prove that company. There's just a bigger variety of people doing that in the US than there is in the Netherlands. And that is very much tied to the regulation that we have in the Netherlands. And even so, very much tied to the regulation we have in Europe. So, yeah, yeah I really think, Barry. I can see that. So what are you most proud of achieving so far? Do you have any anecdotes that you just keep talking about? (laughs) I can think of one. I mean, I got pretty impressed with your initiative around this this Dutch Dutch culture thing, HEMA. Maybe you've got a different story. Yeah, I think that's a really nice example of what we're trying to do. Indeed, you got the HEMA, the Hollandse Eenheidsmaatschappij Amsterdam, which is the Dutch single value company Amsterdam, which is indeed a huge retail store, not only in the Netherlands, also international, which is moving from ownership to, which is moving to a new ownership. It's for sale, basically. It was almost declared bankrupt and for which there was a politician. In, sorry? Due to COVID. Due to COVID. Absolutely. Due to COVID. It was on the brink of bankruptcy, but there was a politician or is a politician, May Lee Voss in the Netherlands, who said that this can't be true. This is impossible. There, we have such nice models to make everybody co-owner. This is by definition a good example of something where you want to have civilian ownership of a company. Yeah. He's the runner-up of it. As he came to us and said, well, I want to do this initiative. I want to make... Everybody in the Netherlands, co-owner of the HEMA, to get this it, through these difficult times, to have, so to say, patient investors, investors with a long-term view, investors that don't, they are not looking for, searching for the short-term return, but that know, okay, I'm going to invest in this because I basically like it. I just want to go to that store and I'm happy that it's there. And we thought that was such a good initiative that we, we pulled all strings that we could to make this possible. Yeah. Mind you, speaking about regulatory difficulties, offering the possibility to 17 million people, basically, to all citizens in the Netherlands, well, it's not true. You got to leave out the ones younger than 18 years old, but fair enough. Still a big chunk of people. Offering them the possibility of co-owning the HEMA gives all kinds of regulatory difficulties. Because all of a sudden, you're basically publicly selling a huge corporation. So we had to literally pull all the strings in partners that we had to make this 
possible to make this even publicly operatable. And we're very proud that that worked out. And that was mainly thanks to an exchange. It's a public exchange here in Amsterdam with which we have a really, really good partnership. And next to that, Cojones, which is super nice and super good marketing vehicle or marketing company that really put the spotlight on the HEMA and the spotlight on this initiative. And eventually within no time, we already had 15,000 people all of a sudden investing money in the HEMA, 15,000 people. And it was so well spent the energy and, and, and the results that even the supposedly new buyers, we're not sure if they're actually going to buy it officially, we're not sure, but they said, if we're going to buy this, this is such a good initiative. We want to continue this. This is something that really brings all the loyalty to this shop, to this retail store, and really shows how well engraved it is in the Dutch society. society. Exactly. No. No. No, I mean, when I saw it on LinkedIn, it fascinated me. And I mean, I grew up with that, that store from the moment I was born, you know, everybody yeah. knows it. And then to yeah. see it sort of die through a pandemic and then doing something in order to keep it just alive is, is fascinating. And it proves again what you can do with technology if you bring technology and people together for the right way, you know, the right things to do. <laughs> well, exactly. And, and that's, that comes back to our case as well. What we're trying to do is that you can share the ownership of your company with one click of a button. Yeah. You can get there then people will start going quicker and quicker in sharing their companies. Because we know that entrepreneurs see the benefits of this. We know that they need people behind them, that they need to create a community. Basically, you need to do that for every company that you have. The better the community you can create, the better the success of the company. Yeah, and it creates this alignment around, like, we're we're in this together. Exactly. Rather Rather than the silos that you typically see and the incentives that pull people kind of in different directions. Yeah, and, and to my opinion, if any part of the market is up for this, it's a small and medium-sized enterprises. It's the life of our economy. A lot of people tend to forget that, but it's truly the life of our economy. Yeah, possibly even to accelerate that other challenge that you highlighted before, you know, the big obstacle to overcome. If, if you want to start something without having the capital behind it there, this is how you can organize it as well. So interesting, well, you've been an entrepreneur for a while and you're, you're running your own software business so you're a tech entrepreneur i wrote a book about yeah what defines the software companies that we just keep talking about i'm yeah. always interested to hear from people that are actually yeah doing this themselves what they believe are key traits that you need to have in order to do something that keep people keep talking about in all honesty i find that very difficult to answer what the trade is that people keep talking about it what i do know is that to do this in the way that I'm trying to do it, you need to firmly believe in your own vision, your own ideas, and the way you're, you're going. I made a choice to be a social entrepreneur, to solve societal problems, societal issues with technology and entrepreneurship. That was my choice. It's still up until today my choice. And it's still that particular part that keeps me running, that keeps me getting up every morning because I know what I'm doing is turning the needle. And I have such a strong sense of that I'm doing the right thing in this, that that keeps me up my feet. And if you have such a strong drive, I do notice that people get drawn into it. They see what you're doing. And at a certain moment, as long as you keep doing it, 
the way you thought of doing it, if you keep it straight, they'll hang on and they'll cling on and they'll go along. And I think that that is one of the things to, to eventually reach a success. Definitely if you come basically from nowhere. Exactly. Yeah. Completely agree with that. It's actually chapter, chapter zero of my book. <laughs> so kind of on their journey, creating this company that drives, where you actually create change in the market. And that's what I admire about you. And that's what I, these are companies that I always on the hunt for to have on my podcast. What are the key lessons learned or the tidbits of wisdom that you've gained that where you would say, okay, if there's one piece of advice I would give other entrepreneurs or other CEOs to start or to expand or to accelerate, what would it be? Very good question, especially by pointing out that it should be one thing, one advice. <laughs> I mean, in Dutch, you say don't run and run in seven ditches at the same time. Loop niet in zeven sloten tegelijk. Yeah, exactly. But for the English speaking people, the saying explains don't, don't trip in all the traps that are, that are set out. Don't, don't make all the mistakes at the same time. On the other hand, I would advise an entrepreneur to be prepared that you actually will make all the mistakes at the same time and better be prepared to think, uh, hey, how will I deal with this? How will I go with the flow that's running? Even though I'm, I'm constantly tripping, how do I still crawl a little bit further every time I trip and how do I keep it running? And better be prepared by the fact that it's going to happen than constantly consider having to consider what the risk is that it will go wrong. I think that, that's one of my life lessons in this. So how, do you, how do you prepare for this then? I mean, have you got any, I mean, is this reflection? Is this kind of disconnecting from things? I mean, it's a few things. One way of being able to manage yourself in every mistake that you make is gather people around you that can constantly look over your shoulder and whisper in your ear, what they think would be the right thing to do. If you are an entrepreneur and you get to this situation, you already have the capability to filter what people are saying. You already have the capability to get a lot of information at the same time, to filter it and think, okay, everything what I just heard, this I think is my direction. Just make sure that you have that constant flow in of information and preferably from a few people that are very close to you that truly can look over your shoulder, that truly you can every week, every few days, explain to, hey, this is what's happening right now. This is what it looks like. What would you do in, if you were in my shoes? That's at least what helps for me very well. So you will see, always see me gathering people around me that either are very close to me and really can be relatives, old school friends, university friends, all, all alike, or people that are not, were not close to me, but in a very short amount of time become close to me by looking over my shoulder and by helping me. And those people are often the ones that I was advised to, hey, maybe you should contact this person. And what I try to do is have a, as broad a variety of these individuals as possible. So I don't have 10 Ricardo Semlers looking over my shoulder. And for those who don't know who Ricardo Semler is, it's a Brazilian who started in the 80s with as much autonomy for your employees as possible. That makes your whole company a lot happier, better, and, and, and working better. So avoid having 10 of the same people looking over your shoulder and definitely 10 people that think the same way you do. Preferably get a bunch of people that don't think the same way you do. Yeah. It's a section that I have. I think it's slice number three on my website. I kind of escape the echo chamber. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, then that's it. That's exactly it. And it's not always nice to hear, 
But as nope. long as you have a close connection with these people, exactly. there should be a very good reason that they're saying it. That's exactly a line that is in the same. It's in the same box. <laughs> you need to you need to surround yourself with people that don't say what you want to hear, but what you need to hear. Exactly, and that yeah. is yeah, that requires it's courage. There's courage. Yeah, and I mean one one big element of it you just highlighted. I think the word for that is being curious. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, this was fantastic. So what is next? Where do you want to take the Share Council in the next twelve months? Oh, good question. Very clear answer. In the next 12 months, we'll have good question. The 18th of December, we go live on an exchange and we'll be publicly tradable as a company. Step number one. Step number two, in the next spring, we will have a new funding round to be able to grow our business very quickly into Germany and France. So the third step is after the summer, we'll do the first expansion to these countries And we're super serious about this because we are still super serious about reaching a completely plain level field in the whole of Europe. So next 12 months are going to be busy months for us. Well, I mean, I can only, I mean, this is a very nice way to finalize the podcast. I think people are, that you intrigue them to look for more. So where can they go to find out more about the Share Council and to connect with you to say hi? Well, connecting on the Share Council is www.thesharecouncil.com. And connecting with me is, on average, fairly easy. As far as I know, there's two Quintus Willemses in the world. One lives in Stellenbosch and works at the Stellenbosch University in South Africa. That's not me. The other one is me. Find me on LinkedIn. Okay. Well, this was really helpful. Well, helpful, inspiring for me. I like your... I like the purpose. I mean, I said in the beginning, this gave me Thank you. I like the drive that you have behind your business. I like the way that you are kind of putting your knowledge and your, your wisdom in line to, uh, to help solve societal problems, the big ones. And thanks for your advice. Well, thank you for having me. And last but not least, I'd like to say how super proud I am of the team that we have gathered behind the Share Council because being one man with a mission is nice and okay. But being a team, having that mission gives an opportunity to reach your goal. So thank you. Thanks for letting me explain this. It was a pleasure. And this ends my conversation with Quintus. I hope you enjoyed it. And if so, please leave a review on iTunes. And if it inspired you, please share it with other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that you have in your network. Other than that, thank you for tuning into this podcast. I had the honor to speak to Quintus Wilmse, co-founder and CEO of the Share Council. As said, the goal that I have in this podcast is twofold. Firstly, to inspire new forms of value creation by sharing compelling ideas and stories about the potential we can unlock when technology and people blend in the right way. And secondly, share experiences from tech entrepreneurs like you about what is required to create a remarkable software business and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Before I close, I have two more comments to make. If you know other tech entrepreneurs on a mission that have a story worth sharing, please send me an email at ton.dobby at valueinspiration.com. Building the momentum all starts with revealing the ideas. And that starts with you. And if you want to know more about my book or you're interested in joining the Remarkable Effect tribe, please visit my website at www.valueinspiration.com. Thanks for tuning in. And you could do me a big favor by rating the podcast on iTunes or provide me with your feedback directly. I'll see you shortly on a new episode.
The world's best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.